Lesson One: Basic Hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is also available in iTunes or at thejazzsession.com, where you'll also find Amazon links to purchase the music you hear on the show and a donate button if you'd like to give a little back. I don't know about you, but when I think free jazz, one of the first names that pops into my head is Merle Haggard. And uh, so it's no surprise that saxophonist Brian Murray and his band The Haggards would create an album of free jazz based on the music of Merle. And their album, which is called Pretend It's the End of the World on Hot Cup Records, begins with a tune called Silver Wings. My guest is Brian Murray, and uh, he and his band, The Haggards, have put out a fantastic album on Hot Cup called Pretend It's the End of the World, and uh, man, it's just, this is one of those records that the first time I heard it, I was just instantly in love with it, and uh, it's it's a pleasure to have you on to talk about it. Welcome to the show, Brian. Oh, thanks so much. So, uh, you know, uh, let's not break any new ground here. Let's start off with the most obvious question. Um, why uh, an album in the style of music that you play drawing from the source material that you drew from? And so maybe just tell folks uh, kind of what the album is about and, and how you got the idea, which is a great one. Well, um, it's it's all because of uh, the guitar player in the band, John Lumbaum. Uh I had been playing in his band. Uh, it's called John Lumbaum and Big Five Chord. 
And, uh, you know, we've been playing gigs, and uh, I think we had a gig coming up at the Knitting Factory, and this was a few years ago, and John John always comes over, you know, when we hang out, he's always got a new CD. He's like, you got to check this out. you got to check this out. You know, he's, like, really excited about everything he brings me. And this per- this particular CD, I think he described it as um, the best guitar solo in the world. He's like, you got to hear this solo. <laughs> Uh, he, you know, it was like the best. Everything is the best. Yeah, he's like, this is the best guitar solo in the world. You got to hear this, man. So uh, he played it, and it happened to be like this compilation CD of Merle Haggard and the Strangers that a friend of his had made for him. And um, man, he played me the tune, and I was just blown away. I mean, the guitar solo was cool, but the music just—it was like hit me. I was just like, this is like the most beautiful stuff I've ever heard. And it was like all these great hits by Merle Haggard and the Strangers. And a friend of his had just like compiled like the best of the best. And, you know, to this day, like that's still like the golden CD. Like I still go back and listen to all those great tunes. Uh, It's so weird. Like the guy just knew exactly what I would like, you know, like all of those old albums. And it, a lot of the tunes we play in the band are right from that, that compilation CD that that guy burned for us. So, yeah, that's how the band started. So John gave me the CD, and uh, he kind of played me that guitar solo, and I was like, that's really cool, man. And I was just blown away by the music. And uh, his band had this gig coming up to the Knitting Factory. And uh, I think we were we were out to dinner or something. We were hanging. And I was like, man, you know what we should do? We should play all Merle Haggard tunes at our next gig, you know, just, just to see what happens. And uh, I think John was like, yeah, let's do it, man. He's like, if you'll transcribe the tunes, we'll play the gig. And, you know, I was like, sure, man, because, like, it's Merle Haggard tunes. Like, there's basically, like, three or four chords in the whole song. Melodies are pretty simple, you know. But And so I transcribed, I think we did, like, five tunes. And uh, it just, it was awesome. Like, we did that gig, and I think that was the most fun I'd had playing jazz, like, to that point. It just like something struck, you know, with the band. Like everyone in the band was just glowing. Like after we played these tunes, and even like the there were some heavy jazz guys, you know, that played like the same night on the same bill, and they were checking it out. And I think everyone really dug it. And we just kind of looked at each other, and we were like, "Man, we got to do something." You know, this is this is too fun, you know. And so that's kind of how the band formed. Uh, John kind of took a break from booking big five-core gigs, and I kind of took over as the leader and started just booking gigs under the name Brian and the Hackers. basically the same band playing in the same, like the same way we had kind of developed playing his songs, but only playing the music of Merle Haggard.
before we go any farther, will you tell folks who's in the band? Yeah, okay, so we got John Lombom on guitar, uh, John Arabagon plays alto saxophone, uh, Matthew Mappa Elliott plays bass, and Danny Fisher is on drums, and myself on tenor sax. Now, I want to go back to this idea when you're talking about transcribing the music and how simple, simple's a deceptive word, but how at least structurally simple the songs are. Can you talk about uh, how how easy or difficult that was to, to fit into the, the improvised music context? Because sometimes you hear people say one difficulty about adapting you know, pop or country or uh, other, I don't know, others of those kinds of forms of music is that it's hard to find things to kind of solo over because the songs themselves are so stripped down. I wonder what your experience was like. Well, I think because we had already had this band formed and we were playing John's music and we had this kind of, it was just the way we played. We would play a composition and then after the composition, we didn't play like on the structure of the tune or the chords of the tune or, you know, the form of the song. We just kind of had this idea that like once the composition is over, we were all going to play in the, you know, using the theme of the tune and the idea of the song, but we could, we were free to draw from whatever we wanted to and go wherever we wanted to. And it just had this kind of like organicness to it that we just kind of, we all listened and we all kind of played. And, you know, certain people would take their own solos, but it was much more organic and <clears throat> not trying to play off, you know, a certain structure of the song. So. It didn't matter that it was these Merle Haggard tunes that you know that, that maybe had like three chords. We we didn't it didn't care it didn't really matter because once we started soloing, we were still doing that same concept and expanding the harmonic you know structure of the tune and still playing basically the same way we had been playing, but just in the theme of Merle Haggard and playing over these tunes. And something just happened like we just kind of naturally went a certain way. And maybe with the Merle Haggard stuff, we we are a little bit more reverent to the form of the tune, but maybe like kind of shifting in different ways, like rhythmically, or definitely harmonically in the solos, but we're still kind of playing the tune all the time. And maybe not every track on the record, but uh, some of the tracks are very reverent. We play like the same structure, but the soloist is free harmonically to do whatever they feel. Now this album, uh, we don't know each other, and you didn't record this for me. But had you recorded this album for me, you would have done what you did, which uh, in order to entice me, which is to have this record start with these fantastic uh, horn lines that are, to me, at least to my ear, straight out of like the band's Rock of Ages album, kind of the Alan Toussaint arrangements and those kinds of things, where it's just like this these beautiful down and dirty saxophone sounds that evoke everything to me that I love about this particular style of music. And I just, I have to believe that those must be incredibly fun songs to play. Uh, maybe it's not a, chan a way that you get to play all that often, I wouldn't think. Oh, definitely not. I mean, that, that's the thing I love about the band. I mean, there's like a, there's a sense of humor to the band, you know? But the thing is, uh, we're we're doing out of this. We're doing this out of a love for the music. So, it, yeah, the, the lines are great, and they're they you know they're really fun to play, especially with John Robbie. I mean, he's a great sax player, and we just kind of feed off of each other when we play these tunes. But I think like the specialness of the band is that yes, we are playing jazz, and we're and we're playing you know kind of deep stuff, and we're really going places. But at the same time. There's not this like overall seriousness to the music where we all feel like 
you know, we have to really be serious, and this is, you know, we get, I don't know, it's like a different feeling than when you play certain types of jazz. So it kind of, I think what it does is it lightens everyone, you know, up, then they're free to, like, create whatever they want to create, which is what I feel is like the ideal in jazz, you know, to, like, go where you want to go. any kind of a chance to play this in front of a of a country crowd <laughs> no i don't i don't think so i mean we uh the closest we came to that was um uh one time i i asked uh, robbie folks a great country singer um for, uh, who lives in chicago he happened to be in town and uh we had like a, a friend a friend of a friend knew him and I sent him an email, and, uh, you know, this is a real country singer, and I sent him an email saying that we had this show, um, you know, in Brooklyn, and I would love for him to come sing a song with the band. And to my surprise, he was totally into it. And so this was like a real country artist coming to, you know, he was listening, but he was also performing with the band. And I think he really dug it, man. I mean, he seemed to really enjoy himself. I think it was pretty weird, you know, for him to witness. But at the same time, I, th- I, I think he had a really good time. You know, he seemed to, he seemed to enjoy himself. So that's, I think that's the closest we've come to having like a true country, you know, artist. We haven't really played for a total country crowd. I think our goal is to like play at the rodeo bar in, in New York City. Um, and not get kicked out, or or maybe get kicked out. I don't know what's better. <laughs> yeah, that's it would be, a... be kind of fun to see what they what they think of it. Definitely, I've seen a lot of shows there, and that would, seems like it would be a perfect uh, a perfect venue. I mean, I just have that image. You know, I'm sure that that many people would get of you know like the Blues Brothers scene or whatever. And you right, guys behind yeah. the chicken wire. We but... need like a we need like a thing of chicken wire to put in front of the band <laughs> just in case they start throwing the. <laughs> Well, the thing about this, though, that makes me feel like it could actually work in front of a country crowd is what you've already talked about, that idea of the respect for the source material, that it's not just like, hey, look, aren't we cool? We're playing these country songs and we're a jazz group, but that you're really, you're really offering respect to the original material, even though you're playing it in a, in a style that's, that's completely your own. 
Yes, definitely. And that was kind of my, I don't know, it wasn't a fear, but like, I, I was a little worried that people would think, you know, listening to the record, that we were kind of turning our nose up at country music. And like, the truth is, I, I mean, I love country music. And like, when I heard this Merle Haggard stuff, I, I wanted to devote a whole band to playing it because we like it so much, you know? But that's the thing that I want people to take away from it is like we're not, you know, this isn't like a joke. Like we we're serious. Like we really love this music. We just all happen to be jazz musicians, you know. So another obvious question: uh, Has Merle heard this record? Um, not that I'm aware of. Although uh, um, I, we've had contact with his publicist and sent a CD to her or him, I'm actually not sure. But we've also sent, I've been emailing uh, Merle's road manager, and uh, he contacted us and wanted a few CDs. So I did send them, and I've emailed, like, did you get the CDs? And he's like, yeah, we got them. So I was like, I'd love to know what Merle thinks of it, you know, and told him it was all out of respect for the music. And uh, so I'm hoping you'll hear something. I'm actually, uh, my wife and I are going to see Merle Haggard in July at this uh, Roots Festival up uh, in upstate New York, I think near uh, near Albany, or maybe uh, Ithaca? Yeah, yeah yep. That, uh, that is not near Albany, but it is in upstate New York. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> cool. Yeah, it'll be our first time driving up there, but we're really looking forward to that. Man, if we get a chance to meet Merle, that would just be great. Now, can I detect from your accent that you're not from Brooklyn or any place like that? <laughs> no, I'm not from Brooklyn. <laughs> I, uh, I grew up in West Virginia. And uh, in a very, very small town, um, believe it or not, the name of the town is Nitro, which uh, a lot of my Brooklyn <laughs> jazz fans like to make fun of me about. <laughs> it's kind of near Charleston, which is one of the bigger cities uh, in West Virginia. And will you talk, yeah. talk about your own uh, entry into the music when you started uh, kind of listening to improvised music? And um, Well... As far as, like, jazz stuff goes, I think it, I was in eighth grade, and um, I was, I liked jazz. My parents, you know, they weren't really heavy into jazz, but they kind of liked, you know, big band music, and, and I'd been playing uh, tenor saxophone for a few years, so they were kind of playing me all this stuff, and, and my neighbor um, down the street uh, took guitar lessons with uh, the guitar teacher at West Virginia State College. His name is Chuck Beal. And uh, I think I was talking to him, and he's like, yeah, I heard this guy, he actually teaches just jazz, you know? And I had, like, a classical saxophone teacher. And um, so my, I think my dad called Chuck and was like, do you, you know, teach saxophone? And he's like, well, what does he want to learn? And he's like, wants to learn jazz. And he's like, yeah, bring him up. So um, I got paired up with this great teacher, Chuck Beal in West Virginia, and uh, he basically, I think the first day I went to my lesson, I brought in, I had like a copy of Giant Step Solo that I bought at like the local music store. I couldn't begin to play it, but I just, <laughs> I kind of brought it to my lesson. And I think Chuck looked at it and was like, all right, here's your lesson. Just start learning this solo. And if you get to it by the time you're a senior and you've figured it out, you're going to be on the right track. That was like my first lesson. <laughs> He was an outstanding teacher, and just he, he started me. It was good because I had like a classical sax teacher, and so just, all Chuck did was like taught me how to improvise and read chord changes. He started like giving me all these records to take home. He was super into like Jocko and Weather Report and Wayne Shorter, so he's like giving me all this stuff to take back. You know, just a great teacher, and kind of he had like uh, combos on the weekends, so I started playing in groups on the weekends, and then. 
by the time I was in high school, I was like playing in this band, playing gigs. So it was really, uh, it was really great for me. So it sounds like the idea of of music as a, as a profession is something that you kind of cottoned onto pretty early from from your teacher. Yeah, I mean that's really all I wanted to do. Like I just I knew I wanted to be a musician from the I, I don't know like sixth grade. I just kind of I took to it and it was kind of my thing. Like I just I don't know it was it, you know it kind of came easy for me and then. I, I think the fortunate thing was like I really got paired up with great teachers. Like all through my life, you can kind of trace the steps. And Chuck was there like all through you know my junior high and high school, that, and that was a great thing. And then I went to University of Kentucky and got paired up with this uh, Miles Oglin, great saxophone teacher. And I kind of graduated from there and went to Chicago and got paired up with Mark Colby. And just like all these people really just, you know, kind of instilled me with different things and pushed me in different directions. And then I think uh, I, it wasn't my wife at the time, but um, we were together, my girlfriend at the time. Uh, and we kind of looked at each other and we were like, man, we got to move to New York City. Like, let's just move to New York. And uh I think she just told all my friends we're moving to New York, and I was like, oh my God, we're we really doing this? And we just uh, left. <laughs> we kind of came out and found an apartment, and uh, didn't really, we knew like a couple people out here. And uh, we got married soon after, and yeah, ended up in New York. And I've had, you know, been really fortunate to take a few lessons with uh, Chris Cheek, who's like one of my favorite sax players. And also Rich Perry, like, it, it's so cool moved to New York because you get to, like, study with your idols. How long have you been there now? Um, I think eight years. My wife's really good about remembering dates. I'm pretty bad about it, but I think <laughs> around eight, eight years. Uh, to come it back doesn't feel like that long, though. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we've only been here a few years. I think New York probably back. has a way of feeling that way. Yeah. Um... I want to ask a little bit about the the recording of this record. It sounds like you guys had had a chance to play this music quite a bit before you made the album. Is that right? Yeah, we were we had been playing gigs for a while, and we rehearsed like a, a good deal, like in the two weeks leading up to the recording. And 
one of the coolest things about the recording and uh, we were in we recorded in uh, in Jersey in this really cool studio and we had no headphones so we were all like in one big room and we had buffers you know separated and uh Basically, just it was almost like a live concert. You know, it had that feel. We weren't isolated. There were no overdubs. Everything was either a first or second take. I think we maybe did like two, you know, two tunes where we did a second take. And uh, it was really like a concert. We just had it just had that kind of vibe, and I, I think it really comes through on the on the album. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I wonder other. Are there some uh, some tunes on the album that were either uh, particularly easy to bring over um, into this format or particularly difficult? Are there some things that you remember when you were first arranging these tunes that, that either stuck out as this is a, a perfect tune for this or ones that took a little more work? Well, I think um, All of Me Belongs to You was, was like a little rough going. And I think we were, we were on a gig, and we were playing a different tune that's not on the record called uh, Stay a Little Longer. And uh, in that tune, there's this, it, it kind of goes through some different solos, and then all of a sudden there's this bowed scat bass solo. This guy literally like bows the solo and scats during it. And uh, I had kind of written that into the chart, and on the gig, we ended the tune, and we didn't get to the Boat Scat bass solo, and I was like, no, man, Boat Scat bass solo, and uh, Mappa was like, you serious? And I was like, yeah, so, like, they just started playing it again, and Mappa did this solo, and it was, like, totally awesome. The crowd loved it, and uh, so all me belongs to you, getting back to your question, like, we kind of played it a few times, it just wasn't quite gelling it just I don't know it's kind of a long form and it's kind of weird and I was like man we should we should turn that into like Mappa's feature tune you know so he so I was like let's just play the tune down and you just take the longest Bose Cafe solo you can possibly do and we'll just go from there and uh, we did it in one take and I, I did my like Bob Wills impersonation over it which I you know it was really fun for me and uh, it just kind of worked so th- that tune was a little rough going but like as soon as we added that that solo it just kind of pulled together one thing about all these uh these tunes is that they're all songs and they have uh lyrical content did the did or does the lyrical content inform either the arrangements or the way you approach the songs yeah no i think so like i mean except for maybe Silver Wings, where you listen to the lyrics and it's like a kind of sad song, you know, about someone leaving on this jet plane, and we take the song and just turn it into like this Vegas kind of like really, you know, full throttle kind of piece. It, it doesn't really reflect reflect the lyrics, but um, I think you know, like uh, some of the tunes, you can kind of tell what the lyrics are. Like Miss and Mississippi and You, I think we really are reverent to that tune. And you kind of get that homesick kind of feeling in the song, and also uh, "Lonesome Fugitive," where it's you know, it's kind of got that drunken feel where where people are kind of falling down the stairs. You know, it really kind of brings out the lyrics if you know the tune. <laughs>
What's coming up for uh, Brian and the Haggards? Um, I don't know. We're, I mean, we're really excited about the record. We had our CD release uh, earlier this month, and uh, now um, I'm just looking at booking some more places. Hopefully, uh, you know, with the publicity from the record, we'll be able to play some uh, bigger venues, and uh, maybe it'll be a little easier trying to book some gigs in, around the city. My guest is Brian Murray, who uh, managed to make it all the way through the interview without ever calling him Brian Haggard, which I was sure I was going to do. <laughs> he uh, and his band, Brian and the Haggards, have a fantastic new record that you should definitely pick up called Pretend It's the End of the World. It's on Hot Cup. And uh, and while you're getting that, just get everything else on Hot Cup, because it's pretty much all stellar. It's a, just a fantastic label. Uh, Brian, I really, really like this record, and uh, I'm glad I got a chance to talk to you about it, and I hope we'll have a chance to talk again. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much. That's Brian and the Haggards from their album Pretend It's the End of the World on Hot Cup Records. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session, presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free in iTunes and also at TheJazzSession.com, where you'll find Amazon links to purchase the music you hear on the show, along with a donate button if you'd like to give a little back. The Respect Sextet have a new album on the way and a show at Le Poisson Rouge LPR in New York City to promote it in August. Please check them out at respectsextet.com and be sure to attend their show if you are in or near New York City. Thanks to Dave Vrabel for designing the show's logo. This show, not the Respect Sextet's show, although I'm sure he'd be willing to do that too. Thanks to you for listening. Now get out and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Bye.
Bye. Bye.